Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. A couple of years ago, I built a house. It's the house we live in now. You know how everyone always tells you some nightmare story about building a home? Not me. I loved every minute of it. I was like a four-year-old boy at the construction site. And if you want to have the same wonderful experience as I did, I have a suggestion. Check out Ferguson. At Ferguson, your project is their priority. Whether you're building a new home or working on a remodel, the Ferguson team will be there to make sure everything runs smoothly from start to finish. Ferguson Associates are experts in bath, kitchen, and lighting products, and so much more. They can help with product selection, facilitating orders, and delivery coordination. They work with home builders and remodelers, designers and homeowners to make every project a success. Get started at ferguson.com slash build. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. Hey, Revisionist History listeners, Malcolm here. Before we get started, I wanted to update you on a few things. First thing, this August 24th, the Revisionist History season begins in earnest. Eight old-school episodes in a row, the little narrative jewel boxes you've come to love. We've been feeding you little bits and pieces so far this season, but this is the main event. The heart of it is a six-part series on guns and violence that I think is my favorite thing we've ever done. Weird, moving, funny, heartbreaking. So mark your calendars. August 24th is when it all happens. And by the way, if you want to get that whole miniseries early and binge it all at once without ads, you can, just by becoming a Pushkin Plus subscriber. In fact, just $6.99 a month or $39.99 a year gets you every one of the Pushkin shows early and ad-free. Just go to the Revisionist History show page in Apple Podcasts or pushkin.fm slash plus to sign up. And one last thing, speaking of things you should binge, the latest season of our true crime masterpiece, Lost Hills, has dropped. The new season explores the legacy of Malibu's dark prince, Mickey Dora. Mickey was a surfer known for his style, grace, and aggression, who ruled the Malibu beaches from the 1950s to the 1970s, celebrated for his rebellious spirit. He was also a con man who led the FBI on a seven-year manhunt around the world. Believe me, this is a show worth a listen. So sign up for Pushkin Plus, and you can binge this one too. Hello, hello, everyone. Malcolm Gladwell here. I'm here in the studio with Maria Konnikova, the revisionist history ombudsman, who's come by for the second time to uh, do a little bit of correction and instruction and and tell me what's gone right and wrong in her own mind with our season so far. Maria, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Malcolm. It is always a pleasure. Although I have to say that in your last few episodes, um, I have felt a little bit personally under attack. I mean, we had the monk debates, which was an absolutely fascinating episode to me. And I'll, I'll say a little bit about it in a second. But I don't know if you know that I used to be a debater. Um, and I debated for multiple years at a in, pretty high level. In high school? In high school. Yeah. Yes. And wait, 
And were you successful? I was successful, um, but then I stopped debating. So I did not debate in college, and I stopped debating at the point where you would have gone to like nationals and like really had to focus a lot of time on it. Because at first, I got into it as a way of you know, clarifying my thinking, and I just thought it was amazing when I watched people do this, like, wow, they can synthesize so much information, they can argue all these points. And I'm someone who like really loves to argue out both sides of something to figure out, you know, what do I think? You know, what What's important here? And so I thought debate would, would help me with that. And it did. But there came a point where it became formulaic, where I figured out how to do it, and then I lost interest in it because I realized that it wasn't actually about thinking deeply. Um, it was much more about rhetorical deafness. Technique. Technique, exactly. Yes, it is heavy. That's the, that was the great takeaway for me in doing this because I'd never – I debated very casually in high school once or twice, and we did parliamentary debating where heckling was allowed – and so, That's amazing. We did not have heckling. <laughs> we had heckling because you have heckling in parliament in real parliamentary yeah. systems. So oh, the parliament's a shit show. Oh yeah. <laughs> so when we did debating, we just were focused on the heckling. That's what you know. I mean, of course, that sounds so fun. So I, I miss. I'd probably <laughs> still be debating if yeah. that's if that's what our debate was. But your debate, uh, the monk debates, was not about heckling. No, no, you're not it allowed. Was, it was, yeah, yes. it was a very different format. So for people who didn't listen to the episode or need a little bit of a refresher, you were arguing a resolution, and the resolution was don't trust mainstream media, and you were against this. Um, you were on a team with Michelle Goldberg, and you were debating against. Matt Taibbi and Douglas Murray. And Douglas Murray, as I found out, and I saw, as did other people um, who you spoke with after, that he's a debater. And, and so he, oh, he's, yeah. Yes, he, he's, he's a pro. He, so, so we're going to spoil it. Spoiler alert. Uh, how did you do, Malcolm? I got destroyed. I mean, it was humiliation <laughs> on the level. To the, my social media to this day is just filled with people gloating about how I got my hat handed yeah. to me. Um, um, you did. You did. But what I actually, like, I loved that after that happened, you went to learn to figure out what you did wrong. And so I loved kind of the second part of the episode where we get to hear professionals talk about, you know, what you could have done, what you didn't do, and you went to learn how to debate. My complete ignorance of this debating technique yeah. is what killed me. That and also the fact that, you know, I was excessively self-confident going into the... And not self-confident in my abilities to debate so much as self-confident in, my, in the position I was arguing. I just didn't think that there were lots of people out there, particularly in Canada, who would believe that you shouldn't trust the mainstream media. I just couldn't get... I just thought we we're going to win. You know, I loved the excerpts that you chose for the podcast because, you know, you really showed some of the issues, which is, I actually, I don't think this was a bad thing because you felt strongly about your topic, right? You you didn't even think that it was possible to argue the other side because, I mean, as you just said yourself, like, who you have to be insane to not trust mainstream media, to think yeah. that the alternative is better. And so you brought a lot of emotion to it, which... I think is good from a human point of view, but from a debating point of view is not necessarily ideal um, and can cloud your ability to hear the other side's arguments, what they're actually saying, whether they're twisting your words, whether they're twisting the actual premise of of the debate. Yeah. And that's, I think, where you got got, so to speak. Yeah, it's funny because I'm not normally, I'm not normally someone who does rise to debate and I'm not normally someone who's terribly emotional. I don't really get angry much. or, But in that, there was something about that context that just, like, I got pissed off about halfway through. Yeah. And I just couldn't keep it in. Yeah. And I and, and you could tell that you were pissed. Um, I really think that Douglas Murray he, he, is loathsome. <laughs> I mean, all right. I still do. All right. Well, we'll just <laughs> we'll have that on the record. <laughs> but that... that gets to kind of the psychological heart of it, though, because what we know is as soon as he presses that button and you actually become enraged and you become emotional, your logic goes down a little bit. Your ability to process information goes down a little bit. And your ability to listen um, goes down a little bit. That's why when we're in an argument, we want to be the one who does not get emotional, right? You want to be the one who steps back. You want to be the one who says, okay, you know, let's take five minutes. Obviously, when you're 
on stage in front of an audience with someone you find loathsome, you can't say, okay, let's pause this for five minutes and take a step back. But it actually made me think some of the criticism that, that you got was not listening well. And it made me think, and this gets to the heart of why I quit debate, of something that I learned from con artists. So a few books back, I wrote a book about con artists, mm-hmm. and I spent multiple years with con artists, and I learned you know, all of these fascinating histories, and there's one con artist, um, totally fascinating character, Victor Lustig. Um, I don't know if you've heard of him. He styled himself as Count Lustig, even though he was not a count. Um, this was early 20th century. So Victor Lustig is most famous for selling the Eiffel Tower, not once, but twice to two different groups of investors. So he was very good at what he did. And he wrote something called the Ten Commandments of Con Artists. And one of those commandments is something that just came to mind immediately, which is that a con artist isn't a good talker. A con artist is a good listener. And uh, if you think if you think yeah. about what that means, right, listening to the other person is how you get them and is how you trick them, is how you take advantage of them. And so it actually, that's what came to mind when I was listening to this debate. And I thought, wait, a debate is a con in a lot of ways. It's, oh, it's, that's interesting. It's kind of a way to... You know, if you're the better listener, you're actually going to be the better talker and you're going to be able to take advantage because con artists are great talkers, right? They're they're silver-tongued, but listening is at the heart of it. But here's the other thing I was thinking about, you know, with respect to debating. The second way in which debating is kind of a, not a trick, but... Oh, it's a trick. (laughs) Well, a version of a trick. And that is that I realized that my... Uh, my normal way of going about the world is I take in information and don't respond immediately. I tend to turn things over for a long time and decide how I feel a long time later. Might be weeks later, might be months later. I'm someone who kind of, I'm a slow processor. And slow processing has been very useful for me. The debate form does not advantage the slow processor. I was in a situation where all of a sudden I had to do in real time respond to people. I can't do that. Yeah. I don't have a kind of... And Douglas Murray, a great debater, his great advantage is his fluidity, right? It's just like it comes in one ear and boom, he has a response. And I'm still thinking about it. Months <laughs> later, I'm still thinking about, oh, what should I have said, you know, in that? Yeah, and it's it's a skill. It's, it is. It's a skill. And that's, you know, at the end of the day, that's what I came away with, that Debate teaches you very useful skills of fluency and of conning. Yeah. I want to make one additional point about this. <laughs> Please do. Um, when I went and hung out with the Brooklyn Debate League, they were, the, they were my tutors and had to be a better debater. The one transcendent value in learning to debate, remember that the kids that they, at the Brooklyn Debate League, they, that they're most concerned with, many of them are from less privileged backgrounds, right? We're talking about kids from poor areas of Brooklyn. You know, what debating allows is for these kids to be heard on subjects where they would, where normally no one would ever pay them the slightest attention. So you tell a 15-year-old kid from Bushwick, um, we're going to debate immigration policy. And not only do they get to talk about immigration policy and people have to listen, but it allows them to almost have another identity. And <clears throat> These are kids who never have a chance to have another identity. Yeah. Right? And that's what is an incredible gift that's being given to them by allowing them to stand up and inhabit a way of thinking or a set of opinions that would otherwise be denied to them. No, that that's amazing. And I think that that is something that is actually incredibly special about debate. So, so let's just caveat and, and yeah. put that as an asterisk, that it can give you tremendous skills. It can give you confidence. And especially, you know, someone like me, you know, I didn't speak English when I came here. I was an immigrant, didn't fit in very well. And that was also a way for me to fit in at first. Yeah. Yeah. So there was actually one listener email that came in, which actually raises some of the things we've been talking about. So here's what Jonathan writes. So what if we learn to listen to each other in debates? I've always struggled with the benefits of any debate. Does winning a debate matter anymore to the well-being of society as your favorite NBA team winning a game matters? Does a society full of expert debaters achieve something our current society cannot? I think this was actually 
you know, a, a really important question and something that we've been touching on. Because while I think that you know, debate has given me a lot of positives. And as you say, kind of this group in Brooklyn, it's definitely giving them a lot. Those skills of, you know, fluidity and being silver-tongued are not necessarily, I think, beneficial. Mm-hmm. Well, the the question is, are there sort of spillover effects? Like listening, um, being someone who learns to pay attention carefully to what yeah. people are saying is a really important skill that you can only gain through practice. That's very true. So to the extent that debating is really listening practice, then I think it's really useful. Um, A lot of what's difficult about listening and why I think we think of it as an imperiled skill is that listening is about the negation of the self, right? I is not important. Mm -hmm. It's you who are important. And there's so much privileging of I these days. I've always wanted to, to, uh, you know, have a little alternate fantasy where I teach an English class for a year. And I would like in my English class... Can to, I take your class? <laughs> I don't know if you'd want to, but um, one of the rules I would have is that we're going to write a series of things over the course of the next year. And my rule is you can never, ever use the word I in anything you write for me. Right? No I's. If, you, if I see an I referring to yourself in anything you write, you fail. Right? And just that, I feel like the kind of the discipline of forcing someone to always be talking about the other um, and to distance themselves from their own perspective would just be incredibly useful. Yeah, and the New Yorker would be very happy that they have a whole generation I, of writers who don't use eyes. I tried so hard for so long when I was a New Yorker writer not to fall into the eye trap. And then, you know, eventually you're like, I oh, give in. You're just like... Speaking to this journalist. <laughs> I know. It's just like, So disingenuous. I love, and the, the English got around this by saying one. Yes. One listens to one's perspective mm. on one. Which, and, and what does one think about this? The problem is that you get, you get into the multiple one then. And you once you commit to using one once, you have to keep. And you're like, oh, please, just stop it. It's really annoying. And it's not just annoying. It makes it difficult to understand because it's actually unclear. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. I'm assuming you've heard about Versailles, arguably the most blatant symbol of luxury ever created. Over 720,000 square feet, 700 gilded rooms, where Marie Antoinette said about the peasants, let them eat cake. And we all know what happened to Marie Antoinette. The guillotine. 
My advice to Marie Antoinette would have been, Marie, you need to pursue slightly less ostentatious displays of wealth. We all deserve luxury, but you don't need 700 gilded rooms. I would have gotten Marie a nice studio somewhere in central Paris and outfitted her with one of Sattva's extraordinarily luxurious mattresses, where she could have slept like a queen without spending like a queen, and where she could have gotten a great night's sleep, even with the mob chanting for her head in the streets. Sattva proves that true luxury doesn't have to cost a fortune, as they sell for a fraction of the price of retail. So you see, getting a new mattress, unlike owning Versailles, is nothing to lose your head over. Right now, save $200 on $1,000 or more at Safa.com slash Gladwell. That's S-A-A-T-V-A dot com slash Gladwell. The second thing I wanted to talk to yeah. you about today is the importance of precise language. Mm-hmm. Um, even if that language might make you uncomfortable, even if yeah. that language might not be nice, so to speak, but the importance of saying precisely what you mean. And I actually started laughing out loud at this listener email that we got. Um, So I'm taking the liberty of writing as an admirer of Malcolm Gladwell's work to share my humble opinion on the use of swear words and vulgar language in your content. There is no doubt their use and proliferation has become part of the zeitgeist. It seems people feel that even in formal contexts, they lend an air of cool and nonchalance, helping them avoid coming across as stuffy and staid in a culture where everyone eagerly wants to be hip. What they don't realize is at the same time they cheapen the language and give it an air of tawdriness. It's the opposite of classy and also reflects laziness on the part of the writer. I hardly doubt Pushkin would have used such curse words in his writing. And this is where I just lost my shit. Because this is someone who has never read a word of Pushkin. Pushkin is the most foul-mouthed poet, just I think in Russian history. And this is among other foul-mouthed poets. There is profanity in Russian language. And it's not just profanity. It is like, it is profane profanity. And your namesake company, you know, Pushkin, um, is named for someone who was so enamored with precision in words, with using the right word. And he would actually, he has an entire poem that laughs at censorship and at people being snooty about language. I'm not going to actually read that poem, but I was going to read um, a few a few Pushkin uh, lines. So let me just give this gentleman a taste of what Pushkin's writing is actually like. There's one from a poem which is called uh, the Wagon of Life, So I'm actually going to just read this lovely, four, just four lines in Russian, and then we'll do a translation. Сутра садимся мы в телегу, мы рады голову сломать, и презирая лени негу, кричим, пошел ебёна мать. Russian is such a beautiful melodic, s- melodic language. language, yes. So here's, this is this is just my rough translation. In the morning, we get into this cart, which is, you know, this wagon of life. Um, we are happy to challenge our brains. Literally, it says break our heads, but that's not idiomatic, so. And detesting laziness and leisure, we yell, get moving, fucking mother. But it's not, fucking mother is the literal translation, but that does not even begin to describe it. So in Russian, the word to fuck um, and all of its permutations is such an incredibly powerful thing that, so I, I was talking to my mom in preparation for this episode and asked her, you know, how would she describe it? She said, well, you could say that saying fuck in English would be like, you know, a, a politician just giving a talk in front of an audience compared to what something like Yibyonnamait sounds like in Russian. I mean, people can get killed for saying that to someone else. Oh, really? It's a very, yeah, I mean, you can, there's there's actually a history of, you know, people bringing fists to faces when you, when you use phrasing like that because, you know, it's incredibly, incredibly powerful. But um, your, your voice changes when you speak Russian in this really interesting <laughs> way. I'm, I'm, I'm falling in love with you speaking Russian in a way that I'm... That's very funny. Can we do an episode where you're just speaking Russian? Yeah, right? absolutely. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, it. It's not just me who's who thinks that 
this is so incredibly important. If you look at, you know, Russian history, the use of swearing is an incredibly important part of the language, part of expression, part of kind of communicating clearly. And in fact, Dostoevsky wrote back in 1873 about um, how the single word hui, which means prick, dick, but it's once again, it's, you know, both prick and dick and cock, like all of those words are not not quite right, mm-hmm. but but the male sexual organ, how you could basically describe everything and every single emotion in the Russian language with that one word and its permutations, and how he thought that it was just awful that because of censorship, he couldn't actually use it. Yeah. Um, and so he has just this whole big thing on it. And this is Dostoevsky. Yeah. So if you had named your company Dostoevsky instead of Pushkin, he also would have been, a, he also have would have been a, on I, board. Can I just venture yeah. a- a mild defense of our letter writer. No. Um, yes, please go ahead. Um, which is, I I think that what the letter writer is arguing against is sloppiness, that sometimes people use profanity when they can't be bothered to express themselves more articulately, more clearly, more specifically, more. In other words, it's, it becomes a kind of crutch, but the careful and the choice use of profanity, it can be very powerful and sometimes even beautiful. Absolutely. Um, and there are times, I remember I had this conversation with, um, it's funny enough, a friend of my brother's is uh, a Mennonite pastor who is writing a book about um, the use of profanity in the religious context. And he told me this story about um, a woman whose sort of life had collapsed, a series of incredible terrible things that happened to her and she relates this to her friend and her friend who was someone who would never in a million years use a profanity used a profanity and it was this incredibly emotionally important moment because what the woman who was suffering needed at that moment was someone who understood the magnitude of what had happened to her and the only way for a very strict religious person to express that was to swear, was to was to go into forbidden territory, right? Like, that's really yeah, beautiful. That's, and I, I don't think our letter writer would disagree with that kind of use of profanity. I don't know. I don't know. Our letter writer seemed... I'm uh, just much more generous towards I, I'm not. My, I, get, I get so... So one of the reasons I get so riled up about this is um, the letter writer has a lot in common with Vladimir Putin um, because back in 2014, um, Putin enacted a ban on using the four base swear words um, in Russian in any sort of cultural or artistic expression. So hui, which we already talked about, um, yibait, which was in the Pushkin poem. So that poem would have been censored and would not have been allowed to be published, and Pushkin could have actually been put in jail. Um, Pizda, which is kind of your um, female Another regions. Osos. All of a sudden, um, Maria, you are you are resorting to euphemism. <laughs> it hasn't stopped you in the previous right, ten minutes. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, and blyat, which is slut. Um, yeah. But normally, you just use it, at, you know, as a as a daily exclamation and in different permutations. So those four words are banned um, mm-hmm. in the Russian language. And this was around the same time that he was, you know, enacting all the anti-gay stuff. Um, and you know, it's a way of censoring expression, ideas. It's kind of like taking a hammer to it, right? Because those those words, something that my mom also always says is there are really no bad words, it's just bad people. Yeah. <laughs> and so by banning these words, you know, he's showing that he's one of the bad people because you can hurt someone much more. Just like you said, that using swears judiciously can be beautiful and can just be very powerful. You can hurt someone without swearing. Mm-hmm. You can you can really just skewer them and just be absolutely vicious without using a single bad word. Yeah, no, and it's it's all in the intention. It's all in the person. It's all. So I, as the moment I see any kind of censorship, it's kind of like you in the monk debates. My emotions start getting riled up, and uh, and I start wanting to say no. You know, I I'm basically always against anyone who says you should not use any yeah. some kind of language. Yeah. So, Malcolm, now that we've uh, established the parameters of precise language use, let's take a quick break.
Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. All right, we're back. Now, Maria, as you know, we gave Columbia University the first ever Pushkin Prize for the way they screwed around with their data to get a higher place in the U.S. news rankings. We awarded them the George Santos Memorial Pushkin Prize for egregiously deceptive self-promotion. And they were it was all because a Columbia professor named Michael Thaddeus found them out. And after he exposed their shenanigans, they fell from number two to number 18. It was a huge scandal. Which is quite the fall from grace. It is quite the fall from grace. Um, no one is more obsessed with the U.S. news rankings than me. No one was more delighted to see <laughs> Columbia tumble so far and so fast. But I can see... Um, that for a Columbia alum such as yourself, this could be a little bit disconcerting. You didn't feel like your degree was in some way devalued by learning that the school was 18th as opposed to second. No, no, because um, when I applied to Columbia, first of all, it was grad school, so it's a little yeah. bit different. Um, but secondly, it was not number two because this was pre-manipulation. So, I mean, I'm sure there was still manipulation, but this was, I started grad school in Columbia back in 2008. So this was this oh, was a while I think back. the manipulation may have started by then. Okay, it's one thing we don't know, right? You know, when Columbia did... has not come clean about they've given us no no knowledge at all about the extent and this is breadth true. of this conspiracy. But I think it's reasonable to assume that it may well have started maybe in yeah. the '90s. That that's actually probably accurate. Yeah. And the show we just did about it, I asked. Revisionist History's resident data scientist, Lauren Laval, to reconstruct what Columbia did. But I also wanted to know, and this is crucial, is there a way they could have cheated so they wouldn't have gotten caught? 
In other words, is there a way they could have climbed into the top 10 without having run any risk of exposure? And so Lauren sat down and went through the data and figured out a strategy to make this happen. So we're, we're trying to do like a more sneaky route of getting them into the top 10. So in 2023, Duke and Northwestern tied for number 10. So we're looking to get the same score as a Duke or Northwestern, which is about a 92 out of 100. Lauren says that for Columbia, just to beat those schools or tie them, they don't need to try goosing numbers like their graduation rate or their student-faculty ratio or even how much they spend on instruction. There's all kinds of reasons. They can just leave those particular metrics alone. I want to specifically keep the expenditures per student figure as close to reality as possible because those are publicly available figures and they're in the consolidated financial statements. And also since their spending is already so high, like blowing up that number further doesn't actually do much as far as ranking goes because it's already in the top like 98% of schools, like they're already a top ranking there. Instead, Lauren says, what Columbia could do if they want to cheat without getting caught, is just to play with three variables. The percentage of class sizes under 20 students, the percentage of class sizes over 50 students, and the percentage of faculty that are full-time employees. So three, like, totally off-the-radar statistics. Now, for each of these categories, Columbia gave numbers to U.S. News that didn't line up with what Michael Thaddeus found. The differences were enormous. So Lauren says, secondly, Columbia should just pick numbers that are about half as wrong. So somewhere in the middle between what they sent U.S. News and the truth. And if all they'd done was those subtle tweaks, they could have cracked the top 10. And what I arrived at was the combination of those values gives us a rounded score of 92 which ties Columbia with Duke and Northwestern for 10th place, which is kind of what we were aiming for. But of course, that's not what Columbia wanted. They wanted to rule the rankings, and that's why they blew themselves up. Because climbing higher in the top 10 is really, really difficult. So, you know, we have to start making bigger and bigger fabrications in order to keep climbing places, which lends to that idea of the synergy between the ranking metrics, right? Like we have to tweak many variables and in some cases by a lot to start seeing any appreciable change in score. Like inflating one or two values just doesn't really do much for us. What Lauren Novella is saying is that if Columbia just fiddled with three incredibly obscure metrics and just casually ease their way into the top 10, no one's going after them. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. If they cheated just by a little bit less, like, who knows? And this goes back to when did they start cheating, right? Because I'm guessing they did not start being so egregious right away, right? They started small, and then they started climbing, and they got more ambitious, and no one... No yeah. one caught them. No one took them by the hand and said, you know, bad boy, <laughs> you can't do this. And so they kept going and they kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that to me is, you know, the, the hallmark of the cheaters who get caught. Columbia only gets caught because this guy, Michael Thaddeus, a math professor, takes an interest and devotes an enormous amount of time to figuring out how much, to the extent to which his institution cheats, right? No one else is checking. So right away we have a suspicion there may be more cheating going on because how many of these obsessive, devoted math professors out there are there who have the motivation to look, right? Not like the government's looking, or U.S. News is certainly not looking, (laughs) because if U.S. News, the minute that they um, claim to verify the validity of the data they collect, then they're liable in the case of, in the event of a fraud. So they very clearly say, we don't check anything. It's on on you. (laughs) So anyway, the reason I bring this up is I'm walking down the street in Manhattan about two weeks ago, down 22nd Street. Okay. Guy stops me. He goes, Mr. Gladwell. He goes, I go, hi. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Big fan of revisionist history. Uh, I, read the, I read that thing you wrote about Columbia, and I got to thank you because it brought me all kinds of clients. Uh-oh. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? I was like, what do you do? He goes, I'm a lawyer. He goes, what clients? He goes, well, you can imagine when other schools learned about what was happening at Columbia, 
they realized they had some legal exposure, and they called me. So I got all these clients now. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. And then I said, well, tell me more. And he's like, oh, I, I, I can't. And then he walked away. And I said, well, I gave him my email. I was like, he didn't email me. Of course he didn't. He didn't. So, but that exchange makes me think, wait, so what is he saying? Is he saying that lots of schools are cheating? They see that Columbia got busted, and now they're panicking and they're calling him to figure out whether they have legal exposure? Is that what he's saying? I think that's what he's saying, because as the moment you started telling the story, and it didn't even occur to me until this conversation, but of course everyone cheats on the U.S. news rankings. And in that case, right, if everyone's cheating by a little bit, then the rankings are actually probably still pretty accurate, because if every single school is trying to bump themselves up a bit, <laughs> then it probably kind of all evens out. But there are, no, I'm no, guessing, no. No, 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 okay. no, 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 I'm totally <laughs> but not, not, with with, not with Columbia, right? The people who are doing it egregiously, obviously, it doesn't yeah. even out. No, it's but, not. What, what, a better, more plausible explanation is there's a cheating arms race yeah, that somebody fiddles true. a little. Someone else realizes that their uh, yes. peer okay, is okay. fiddling a little, and they fiddle a little bit more. <laughs> and then what you went, Columbia is the culmination yes, okay. of a whole series of... Got it. So Columbia yes. is a nuclear explosion. Got yes. it. Um, but but yeah, it made me realize, you know, how many people are cheating, how many schools are cheating on the rankings, how many are actually being smarter and just cheating smarter and not yet as cocky as Columbia became. Because that's the other thing, right? The more you get away with it, the longer you get away with it, the yeah. more confidence you become that you will keep getting away with it. And that's completely rational. I've, so as someone who studies this, I'm curious on this question. Is it, so the longer you cheat and get away with it, the more confident you become that you won't get caught. But is it also the case that the less aware you are that you're actually cheating? No, I don't. Th- I don't you think don't that's think right. That. No, I think I think that these people are not pathological. They they are very well aware of what they're doing, but they probably give themselves excuses because they also don't think they're doing anything bad. And people who cheat all the time, who lie all the time, they want to justify that. No, I'm not a bad person, and I'm not really doing anything wrong. So Columbia actually probably tells itself we're not doing anything bad. We're just staying competitive because if we're the only truly honest school and everyone else is cheating, then we get screwed, and they all benefit. So, you know, let's all do it a little bit. The the Lance Armstrong. The Lance Armstrong doping argument. Exactly. For which, at various times in my life, I've had a lot of sympathy. So here's what Lance would say. Lance would say, in the era that I was taking EPO and winning the Tour de France every year, um, not just EPO, lots of things, the only way you could compete at the highest levels of cycling was if you were using uh, performance-enhancing drugs. My problem is that I was better at it than everybody else. And I think that that's actually true because, you know, you can't just take performance-enhancing drugs and expect to be better overnight. They're, they're simply a tool that allow you to train in different ways and to exploit your potential um, more efficiently. And he was the most efficient exploiter of his own potential, right? <laughs> this he, is true. He, he brought a considerable... His considerable intelligence and the man and his group or these guys were like to bear on the question of, okay, if we're going to take EPO, how do we maximize its usefulness? So like he's sort of right. Like if Lance is a less expert cheater, he doesn't get caught. Most of those guys never got caught. But it's also because he's so incredibly talented that people are going to scrutinize him more. Yes. And so he's like Columbia in this respect, you know, that the reason we care that Columbia is cheating. So yeah. It's Columbia, yeah. right? We're not East Tennessee State. If they cheat on their U.S. news, we're not getting quite as upset, right? We don't feel right. like the stakes right. are as East great. East Tennessee State. No offense, please, but yes, point point, point taken. Yeah. So, By the way, can I make a personal yeah. confession yes, about please. cheating? On the weekend, Malcolm, what do you cheat on? I'll tell you what I cheat on. On the weekend, <laughs> I ran in the uh, Sharon, Connecticut Classic Five Mile Road Race, oh. an annual road race. How'd you do? And uh, I came in, I think. 17th. Nice. Congratulations. I'm an old man. That was a, it, was a, it was a good... But I cheated. Uh-oh. And I cheated because there were maybe other cheaters as well. I was wearing what they call super shoes. Ah. You know you know about this. There's I now running now. shoes you can yeah. buy with carbon fiber plates. Yeah. And there's a particular kind of running shoe made by New Balance, which combines a carbon fiber plate with what they call a high stack height, an enormous amount of cushion. And you kind of bounce down the road. <laughs> and I heard about... And in certain races... These particular New Balances, 
You know, they're banned from formal competition. I could not wear these if I was running an Olympic marathon. But I'm like, it's the sharing plastic yeah. <laughs> five, five months. It's like, you know, there's like 50 people in the race. You know, it's Saturday morning. Like, I'm an old dude. Nobody cares. Um, but technically, it was cheating. Well, was right? it was it actually banned? Well, is it formally banned? No. But it's cheating in the sense that it is a violation of the ethic of the sport. Okay. And it is an unfair advantage over everyone who was in that race who was not wearing carbon fiber carbon plate shoes with high stack heights. Well, if this was if this were actually an important competition, I don't think you would do that. Are you saying that my race wasn't important to me? Are you? Do you <laughs> yes, I am saying that, Malcolm. <laughs> that is exactly what I'm saying. I, no, did I, I felt mildly guilty. I was at the start. I was at the starting line, and I was looking at everyone's shoes to see if anyone else had these shoes. And I feel guilty. I there was a, a conscious decision in the morning. It was like because I have lots of legal shoes. Sure, sure. And everyone's virtually everyone who's serious is wearing some kind of carbon fiber. Yeah shoe. But this is the one that combines it with the high stack height. <laughs> and so I was looking around. I was like, is anyone else wearing these New Balances? And I felt a little bit exposed, yeah, I have to say. Yeah. I, but no one noticed. And my, if you look on the website of the Sharon Classic 5-mile race, there's no asterisk next to, next to my performance. Well, I, now, now everyone knows. I mean, I did not know that I was sitting across from a bona fide Maybe cheater. you can put that story in your Maybe maybe now you're going to make my and, cheating book. And, and it's going to be it's going to be an entire chapter. I, Malcolm Gladwell, I just the wanna, cheater. You know, I just want to very briefly go back. We're nearing the end of our time. Yeah, I have one last little bit of business, which is you know I've been handing out these prizes, mm-hmm. Pushkin prizes, and we had talked a little bit about the first one, the George Santos Memorial Pushkin Prize for egregiously deceptive self promotion. And, I love um, that you put memorial in there. That's hilarious. Well, his career is essentially over, so I feel like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, there was another one I did in a... I read this story by this um, student at Harvard. Harvard, your school that you attended. Um, <laughs> the uh, a guy named Brooks. See, that was, you, you put a little barb in there without any swear words. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, some of my best friends went to Harvard. Um, and, uh, and, and they're perfectly nice people. <laughs> they're perfectly nice people. Um, so I found this this student named Brooks Anderson who wrote an article for the Harvard Crimson in which he pointed out just how many administrators there were at Harvard. And so I called him up and I said, Brooks, can you do a little work for me? I want to know which school in America has the highest ratio of administrators to students. You know, the perfect number would be one, right? And I call that the ICU staffing ratio. An ICU in a hospital is characterized by the fact that there is a one-to-one ratio of staff to patients, right? That's the baseline. Yes, yeah, yep. It's the baseline. Often there's more, but that's the baseline. So I said, to what extent can we figure out if any college is coming close to an ICU ratio? So this is the second Pushkin Prize, the ICU Staffing Ratio Award. And I deputized Brooks to go out in the world and to do some research and figure out who is the closest to the magic number of one. And so I just wanted to run through his findings. Um, we, I limited him to the Ivy League plus MIT and Stanford, okay. which seemed reasonable. Um, and so he has, at the bottom was Brown, 0.14. Then Columbia, 0.15. Columbia. <laughs> there it is again. Columbia. <laughs> Cornell, Dartmouth, MIT, Harvard, and the highest. At a staggering 0.36 administrative staff to student ratio. Is Yale. The Bulldogs, they take home the prize, which means like you walk around the Yale campus, chances are you're one third as likely to run into an administrator as you are a student, which is, I'm sorry, completely and utterly bananas, right? <laughs> it, it, it is bananas, but but I will I will actually push back a tiny bit on this uh-huh. because as someone who went to <clears throat> Harvard, yeah. Um, we always were a little bit jealous of the fact that Yale students had more support, um, more resources, and wait, you were a, I'm, you I'm were, serious. You're right serious. Now. I'm actually serious. You went to right Harvard, yeah. and one of your complaints was a lack of resources relative to other schools. Not relative to other schools, just relative to Yale. That Yale was a much more personalized environment where students actually had places to go, people to talk to, where there was a very big support structure that was actually pretty absent at Harvard. Like at Harvard's a big school where you sink or swim. And I was fine with that. I actually I loved it. Like Maria, I'm independent. Maria, I don't need it. Maria, I understand. Maria, I see on. your face. I Come see on. your face. But but 
all of these people sink or swim. There are no one's ever no one's ever sunk in the history of Harvard University. Oh, some people have sunk. I mean, like yeah, 1936, somebody dropped out. <laughs> But all all I mean is that administrators do serve a purpose for student support, student resources. I think that's important. And all of these people have jobs. So these are people who are getting paid money and making a living, and they'd be fired if you had lower ratios. No and people are going, hungry babies, starving babies, <laughs> Malcolm, starving babies. No one is saying that anyone needs to be fired. With the Pushkin Prize, we simply like to shine a spotlight okay. on, shall we say, anomalous behavior by elite institutions in the United States. Um, come on. <laughs> One I'm, I'm trying, administrator I'm for every three students. It's getting... We're not talking about academic staff. Okay, so academic staff obviously talking, is more important. So, but And for the parents who pay the tuition that covers this enormous amount of administrative right. bloat. Fair enough. Yes, yes. Um, Maria, this has always been um, enormously fun. Um, I will go home just thinking about your transformation when you speak Russian and how <laughs> anyone with the privilege of hearing you speak Russian gets a different Maria. I love it. And, and Malcolm, I will go home thinking about your 17th place finish in your race that, that was life-changing for you, right? It was. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Malcolm. Revisionist History Today was produced by Kiara Powell with Jacob Smith Leemingus to Ben Nadaf Haffrey and Tali Emlin. Engineering by Flan Williams, Sarah Bruguer, and Kay Wang. Our music by Luis Guerra. Fact-checking by Kishel Williams and Tali Emlin. Our showrunner is Peter Clowney. I'm Malcolm Gladwell. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You can rent a car, a house, even that little black party dress. So why not rent the stuff you need for your home, too? The place to do it is Errands. Choose from thousands of new products from the brands you love, online or in store. Pick a payment plan that fits your budget and pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But if life changes, you can return it any time or even upgrade it with something new. Rent what you need. It's better at Errands. Approval not guaranteed. Restrictions apply. See store for details. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com.